This is the second half of the message we began last week. I said at the beginning, I had a sneaking suspicion we wouldn't get through all 10 commandments, and we didn't. We got through six of them. But I didn't want to hurry. I didn't want to rush through these because they're so important. And it's a, it's a central passage of scripture, as you all well know. And so tonight we're just going to finish where we left off. I'm going to bring us up to speed a little bit and remind us where we've been. But uh, we're just going to focus on those last four commandments and, and then what happened afterwards. And I'm going to uh, begin just by reading up to where we were last time. Starting at verse 1 of chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. That was as far as we got last time. And just to bring us up to speed, at this point in the story, Israel has left the land of Egypt. God has provided a way through the Red Sea, and they have had manna as they've gone through the wilderness. He's he's given them victory against Amalek in battle. He's provided water from the rock, and now they are at Mount Sinai. They have agreed to the covenant with the Lord in chapter 19. And God has descended upon the mountain in glory. And you have to remember this. During this whole story, the mountain of Sinai is on fire. It's smoking like a kiln, it says, like a furnace. It's burning and blazing. And there's also a storm, like a thunder lightning storm, striking lightning on the mountain. Voices are shouting forth. There was a trumpet that just got louder and louder and louder. And the Lord himself is speaking these words, not just to Moses, but to all the people. Every adaptation has Moses coming down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. And that image will be in here. But the first time they're spoken, they're spoken from the theophany, the glory of God on the mountain, to the assembled people. That's why they had been consecrated for three days, if you remember. God is reminding them who he is. That's why he begins by saying, I am the Lord your God. Remember, I am that Yahweh or Ekyeh, it can say. This is Jehovah God, the Lord, the I am. He says, this is who you've made a covenant with. And he begins to lay out, remember chapter 20 begins what we call the book of the law proper. From now on, we're actually getting the laws. It's going to be broken up by certain stories. But from now on, they're going to tell you how Israel was to live. And it begins with these 10 commandments. And very often in the Bible, these Ten Commandments, sometimes you maybe have heard it called the Decalogue, which means the Ten Words, which is what it literally says, the Ten Words that God gave, 
are used as representative commandments. There are 613 commandments in the book of the law, but these first 10 were special. They were given at the very beginning and constantly Old Testament and New Testament. They are used as representative of God's commands. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus starts running him through the commandments. Yeah. And a lot of the moral passages that Paul runs through, he, he, walks us through these Ten Commandments without, you know, coming out and saying these are the Ten. But if you pay close attention, you can see. So these Ten are are basics. They're going to be more fully explained in the coming chapters. And for that reason, they are profoundly significant, which is why we are studying them. And we took special time to explain our role as New Testament Christians under the law of Moses and how we relate to it. I'm not going to get into that again. The short version is that we are not under the law, but as the written code is reflective of God's righteousness, then we absolutely ought to obey it. And that is especially clear with the Sabbath rule, but you can look at last time to, uh, to learn more about that. And we saw the first commandment was the commandment against polytheism. We're not worshiping other gods. There's only one God and one Lord. Remember, he said, you shall not have another God, Al-Panim, in my face. You're not going to have another God before me. And the New Testament makes it very clear. Jesus Christ, the only son of the Father, absolutely falls under that category. You shall have no other gods before our triune Lord. The second was the command against idolatry, very closely related. You shall not make any graven image. You're not going to make any carved image. You're not creating pictures of God to bow down and worship or venerate or whatever you want to call it. We're not to bow down or to serve them. We don't do idols in God's church. I got to tell a funny story real quick. I'm sure you've all been to one of those uh, Chinese restaurants before where they've got a giant statue of Buddha out in the front. I remember as a, as a young kid, we went to this one Chinese buffet and there was this, I mean like life size and he's always portrayed as a big fat guy, you know, bronze statue of Buddha. And I remember being so shaken as a young church kid, there's an idol in this place. And I, I was really concerned and talking to dad and my, who's a pastor, I'm like, dad, there's an idol in here. What, are we supposed to be here? And, and obviously it's something different, but in effect, he's like, well, how, he said, how would you like to come and take part of your food and give it to that idol and then bow down to it and thank it for your food? And kids always laugh at that because it's a laughable thing, isn't it? But every time I walk into a Chinese place and they have one of those now, I always remember that story. I was afraid the place was going to get struck by lightning or something. But The third one is the command against blasphemy, not taking the Lord's name in vain. And we talked about how the New Testament even expands that out. to Don't swear at all. Don't make an oath of any kind. Don't swear by heaven. Don't swear by earth. Don't swear by your head. Just speak plainly. That's that's a really great biblical theme that we ought to pay more attention to. That we're supposed to speak plainly. Be slow to speak, James said. Quick to listen. Solomon said it's better to, to not swear than to swear and not keep your vow. So it's important that we're, we're careful, especially with the name of the Lord and the name of Jesus, which is above every other name. Our four was about the Sabbath And this is the rest. Shabbat means to stop or to rest. Jesus told us, Jesus probably had more to say about this commandment than just about any other, that Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Colossians tells us not to let anybody judge us because of a day or a Sabbath, but it is still good for us to take a day to rest and to give attention to the Lord. 
And we talked about that in detail. Number five was the commandment against disobedience. So starting at commandment five, we have commandments that relate to each other. One through four are the vertical commandments relating to God. Five through ten are the horizontal relating to one another. And we began by honoring your father and mother. And I'd say a correlating commandment from the New Testament is that fathers and mothers do not provoke your children to anger. Make it a delight for them to submit and obey. Number six was the command against murder. And we talked about the word ratzak, which means premeditated murder, but it also can include things like revenge. It can include negligence that leads to somebody's death. And we said, this isn't that complicated. Don't kill anybody. But that Jesus expanded that out to say, you shall not even harbor hate or anger or insults in your heart for somebody else. And so that, that takes us to a place of, of uh, inner contemplation and saying, Lord, search my heart and see if there's any wicked way in me. But that brings us to commandment number seven, which is verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. This is the seventh commandment. We've discussed several times in this passage that these commandments are, are representative. And you might think, why does God pick these? Well, because the Lord is not just giving a religious law. He's establishing a nation, an actual nation state in Israel. And he gives them these things that are not just meant to be good things to do and moral things, but the kind of things that will uphold a society and tie a community together. So marriage is fundamental to maintaining a godly society. And I would even say any kind of society that doesn't value marriage, that doesn't value the relationship between a husband and wife is in serious trouble. So he gives us this prohibition against adultery. Now, of course, adultery is having sexual relations with a person to whom you are not married. And that is absolutely wrong. And even most people in the world still get this one. You're not supposed to cheat. They can come up with all kinds of reasons why it's okay. But even in the world, oh, come on. We'll roll our eyes at each other, right? And they'll, they'll be, the world might even say things like, get divorced first, which is still not good. But we, we all kind of get this one. But once again, Jesus intensifies the commandment. If you want to flip over to Matthew chapter 5, very closely related, and in fact, coming directly after Jesus' words about murder and anger and hate, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 28. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, can I just pause and, and say this? Who was it that said you shall not commit adultery? It was the Lord speaking in fire from Mount Sinai. And then Jesus says, but I say to you, do you now understand why it says that the people marveled at his authority? He speaks with authority that I say to you, they would even throw this in his face later. Remember the woman caught in adultery. They said, the law of Moses says she should be stoned, but what do you say? But of course, Jesus was the son of God and absolutely had the right to, to intensify these commandments. And in reality, he wasn't changing anything. He was just reminding them of, recognize what the heart of this commandment is. Don't just do this explicit word and not live out the heart behind it. He says, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In many senses, it is liberating 
to be a Christian. For freedom, Christ has set us free. But our standard of righteousness is actually higher than it is for those that are in the world. He's making it clear that every kind of sexual immorality is a grievous sin before the Lord. And it's not even the act itself, although that is awful. It's the heart. It's that desirous, lustful heart. And I will say, I I did not realize this last Sunday, we talked about the persecuted church, and we actually discussed Canada, and we discussed that there are been churches that have been burned down, and I actually saw that, I don't know for sure, so don't quote me on this, but some of the things that we thought about the, uh, the graves they had discovered may even have been fabricated or at least misunderstood that led to these churches being burned down, so you investigate that for yourself. But I did not realize that some pastors in other parts of the country had actually called for American pastors to speak on biblical sexuality because Canada had a law go into effect last Friday that is, a, is prohibit, prohibiting what's called conversion therapy, which is any attempt to make somebody who thinks they're gay or thinks they're transgender or what have you to try and convince them to pursue their given gender or their uh, heterosexuality, as, it, as it's called. Basically, what the Bible teaches, and that there is as much as five years jail time on the books for this. Now, this does not seem to me, Canada has many laws like this that kind of are, are, are symbolic kind of laws that they kind of pass in order to show how, how great they are, you know, and how much they care about people. But that's a fearful thing. And it's because it's very unclear. Many pastors up there are very concerned. One of the pastors at the conference I went to in California, I believe he was from Toronto or Ontario or one of those uh, cities. He told us, be praying for the church in Canada because he says, I don't know what we're going to do. It's getting very difficult up there. So they've already jailed pastors for uh, having services during the, the pandemic and things like that. So this Sunday, was many people were saying we're going to have a service preaching on biblical sexuality. I didn't know about that, or I would have done it. <laughs> but I also think that we as a church do this regularly, and this is not something that is unknown to us. And this is another great opportunity of why teaching verse by verse through the Bible brings us to every point of emphasis that we might want to skip. So we're going to remember this. He says, you shall not commit adultery, but Jesus tells us this extends far beyond that. So let's just take a moment and remind ourselves, hopefully we all know by now, what the Bible says about this. Sex is to be reserved for the marriage bed. One man and one woman for life. And I might add, you might need to add a corollary to that for this day and age. One man and one woman living according to the sex and gender they were born with for life. You can break that down. Sex is reserved for the marriage bed. There is no fornication permitted in God's kingdom, which is sex outside of marriage. Jesus talked about lust even, which would incorporate all manner of pornography. And there are those that want to get cute about that. Well, the Bible doesn't talk about pornography. No, but it talks an awful lot about lust, and that's essentially what that is, is it not? To be reserved for the marriage bed. One man and one woman. So there's monogamy, and people will say, well, there was polygamous relationships in the Bible. Yes, this is one of those things where the Lord permitted something for a time, and we'll talk about this more in in the book of the law, similar to how Jesus discussed laws about divorce. He said, I did this for your hardness of heart, because it would have been worse to do the other way. But as it goes through, God created one Adam and one Eve. And those who are to be in leadership in the church are only to be husbands of one wife, the Bible says. That is God's ideal and God's standard. And 
between a man and a woman. Homosexuality is called an abomination in Scripture, as is, by the way, adultery, as is fornication, as is arrogance and pride, and all sorts of things associated with that. But nobody's marching in the street saying that being hot-tempered needs to be accepted and, and preached in the church. So this is why we talk about it. We do not condone homosexuality in God's church. and We should not condone it anywhere. For life. We don't get divorced in the church. Does the Lord provide cases where this is permissible? Yes, but the Bible also says, What God has brought together, let not man separate. This is not to be something that we do flippantly or easily or ever. Jesus said, if you divorce for any reason other than sexual immorality, then you commit adultery when you divorce. And folks want to come in and say, oh, this is so restrictive. It's not, though. It's not. It's good, and it's better this way. You know, I don't love stats because you can kind of make them say whatever you want. But over and over again, the people that are polled for having the happiest marriages, the most satisfied sexual lives, and the, the less, least amount of stress related to their romantic relationships are Orthodox Jews and Evangelical Christians that have been married for a long time. The Lord knows what he's talking about. This is to help with the raising of children. Malachi talks about that. This is to provide somebody that you can share a soul with and never have to worry about where they're going. And folks want to talk about, well, what if you get married and it turns out you're not sexually compatible? Listen, friends, if you've only been with that one person, then you're going to grow in that way together. And you're not going to have to think about what might have been because your only experience will have been with the person you're married to. Isn't that wonderful? And the world will come in and say, well, it's, it's restrictive and it's not fair. I want to be able to do more. But the church has been saying for a long time, you start pulling out one of these planks and the whole thing starts to fall down. And we have been mocked from stage one for this and called bigots from day one for this. Back in, in the early days when folks were saying divorce should be free. And we were saying that you start getting divorced freely, you're going to be seeing sex just go rampant and wild. and It's not going to mean anything. And we were called ridiculous, slippery slope argument, bigots for that. Then we get to the free love and the free sex thing. We say, well, you're going to see more marriages fall apart and people are not going to feel happy and satisfied in those relationships. Oh, you're just a bunch of bigots. Well, that's exactly what happened. They start to introduce the homosexuality thing. We say, you can't do that because you start doing that, all manner of sexual perversion will fall apart. You'll blur the line between male and female. That's ridiculous. You're just a bunch of bigots. Well, now you have the transgender thing and the lines are absolutely blurred. And we began to say things like, the more you do this, where do you draw the line? How can you even draw the line at pedophilia? You guys are a bunch of bigots you're a bunch of losers. And then it was a few weeks ago, the Washington Post had an article talking about we need to remove the stigma from those who are attracted to minors. By the way, if you ever see the acronyms MAP or no MAP, M-A-P stands for minor attracted person. Just keep an eye on that. You know, we, we can stand back because that would never happen. It just the, when you start pulling these things out, the Lord's design falls apart. And the world tries to recreate. I've talked about this a million times, so I'm not going to get into it again. But, you know, the world is like reinventing marriage. We don't want to have marriage. We want to have free love and free sex. Well, now we feel all real. All the guys feel like they don't have any responsibility for these children that they're fathering. And all these women feel like cheap and used. And, you know, you really should only have sex if there's a, a clear line of consent. And, and you probably should only be with one partner uh, as much as possible because that way, you know, you, you reduce the spread of disease. And if you're going to enter in this, you ought to sign these consent contracts. And it, it makes me crack up. It's like you're inventing marriage. We don't want to do that. Well, you, you're, you're rediscovering this because the Lord knows what he's talking about. Malachi 2.15 says there is a portion of the Holy Spirit in the union between a husband and wife. 
Well, what's the big deal? We're just having sex. The Bible says the two shall become one flesh and that the Lord is there. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says that sexual immorality is the only sin you commit against yourself. Isn't that amazing to think about? Hebrews 13.4, I think, is a great New Testament sum up of this. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And in fact, the New Testament gets quite explicit in the Greek when it talks about homosexuality, I might add. In the English versions, we translate it, men who practice homosexuality, because the two Greek words it uses explicitly and specifically refer to the active and passive partner in a homosexual relationship. It's so graphic we can't even translate it in the church. It would be obscene, but God is making a very clear point. This is not acceptable. This is the relationship that unites a man and a woman in a safe place, and it must not be defiled. There is more to sex than feelings and carnal pleasure. There's a whole world that comes along with it. It's how God maintains the family. It's how he maintains society. Ephesians 5.32 says that the husband and wife relationship is a picture of Christ and the church. And that applies to the leadership and submission aspects that we're not going to, to touch tonight. We live in a sexually permissive age. And you cannot let it have its way with your body and your imagination. Don't let yourself be continually sexually stimulated by the world. Proverbs, you know what Proverbs tells us? It tells us men specifically, but it can apply both ways. He says, delight yourself in the bride of your youth. It says, be enraptured with her at all times. It even gets explicit, her face and her breasts and her neck and all of that. Let it delight you. The Lord said, I've created this in a good way, but it's with her or it's with him and the person you're married to. And, and there's a whole other world that comes along with this. You want, you want to see young men grow up and, and be men and take care of themselves? Marriage will do that. Marriage will do that. Having children will do that. Or it will turn girls into women. This is why we value this. We honor this. We esteem this in the church. And I say, by and large, the evangelical church does a good job of this. We know that how important this is. On average, our, our young men and young women get married younger. They stay together longer. We have more children. These are all good things. And we ought to maintain that and continue that. The world is bad at marriage and love. Don't look to them for your standards. And don't ever let anybody mock you. Amen. Don't let anybody mock you for staying true to what God has said. And the world can tell us whatever they want. We're going to do what the Lord says. And I'm not, I do not feel even the slightest threatened that I would not be able to preach this one day. But I just hope it's clear. If it's in the scripture, we will proclaim it. We're prepared to go to prison and to death for these things. And this is something that I think the world might have to relearn. We're ready to die for this. It's like, really? We're ready to die for the issues of sexuality? Whatever issue you are trying to get me to break from what my Lord Jesus Christ, who died for me, said, then yes, I'm willing to, to stand on this forever. And I hope you are too. Because the Lord told us right here, you shall not commit adultery. And there's a whole world of truth bound up in that. So let's not be an adulterous church in any sense of the word. Verse 8, or I'm sorry, number 8, verse 15. You shall not steal. This is another simple one. It's kind of hard to do a message on stealing because most people get that stealing is wrong. But it's very important. We are not to steal. And in fact, if you wanted to Spend some time thinking and doing some philosophizing on your own. 
The fact that God tells us we are not to steal from somebody else implies that property and possession are real things in God's eyes. Those that want to go around saying, really, you shouldn't own anything, and we all collectively own things, or the state should own everything. That's simply not biblical. The Lord knows that there is real ownership that people can have, and that's a very basic thing, and most of all, us probably get that. Good, hold on to that. Therefore, it is wrong to take what is not yours. Most of us learned that, hopefully, when you were like two years old. I want that. I'm going to take it. You've been a parent long enough, you can watch your kid's eyes and know when they're about to make a grab for something. It's like, I want that. No, don't even think about it. And then they kind of do that slow thing. Maybe if I move slow, they won't see me. They think you're like a T-Rex and your vision is based on movements. They want to go slow. Stealing, it's wrong. Don't do it. This, and this applies across the board. Whether you're robbing somebody, you're sticking a gun in their face, or you're holding up a knife and you're saying, give me your money. Hopefully none of y'all do that. Don't do that if you do. This is burglary, breaking into somebody's house. Somebody, uh, a week or two ago, I had the, my AirPods in the, the door of my car, and somebody just walked by, opened it up, put them in their pocket, and walked away. And I didn't see it happen, obviously, or I would have got them back. But, you know, that's wrong too. Well, they shouldn't have left it out like that. No, that's, that's wrong. I had to deal with theft when I was working uh, for my company. People would try to steal money and steal tips and, and have people pay not the company but pay their personal account and then tell me that the person canceled the job. And through fraud, misrepresenting what it is you're selling, misrepresenting how much something costs, embezzlement, finding ways to funnel money from your work to yourself, illegal downloads that you didn't pay for, don't steal And the Bible actually ties this commandment to the need for hard work, which is really interesting to think about. Very often the Bible will not just tell us not to do something, it'll give us the positive version of it, right? It doesn't say don't commit adultery. It says delight yourself in your wife at all times and don't keep yourself from one another. Well, when it comes to theft, the opposite of that, according to scripture, is work. Ephesians 4.28 says this, let the thief no longer steal, but rather, or instead, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. If you want something, if you need something, work for it. And it's absolutely biblical. There's a reason we have what's called the Protestant work ethic. Because the Bible tells us if you want something, not something wicked or evil, you're not being covetous, but you want a house, you want to you know, be able to take care of yourself, then go out and work for it. This is what God told Adam in the very beginning. Here's the world. Go tend the garden and go make something of it. And if you've ever known somebody that was prone to stealing, prone to being a thief, find very often they are work averse. The person at your job that is most likely to pocket something and walk home with it is most likely the person that also steals time by not doing any work when they're on the job. The folks for the company I worked for that I would catch trying to steal things, like, I know that's going to go in the back of the truck and not in your backpack. Isn't that right? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yes, of course, sir. It was never the hardworking people that did that. It was always the ones that thought they were too good for that job. I thought they were better than that. I could have been somebody, but, you know, my, my knee kept me out of basketball tryouts or whatever it is. And so I'm better than this. Therefore, I'm, it's okay for me to steal. Hard work is the remedy for those that have a propensity to steal And then you will be right in having it. If you've taken the time to work hard, 
earn the value of your labor. And being smart, we don't you gotta feel like you're bound to your boss. Right? We live in a great country where you can choose who you work for. You can go out and get a credential and work and earn what you get. Then when you have it, you can own it without feeling guilty about it. And when somebody does come to try and make you feel guilty about it, you can sit there and know, I worked hard for this. I earned this. Nobody just handed this to me. And people always want to go, well, what if somebody's desperate? What if somebody has no money and no food? And, you know, what if it's a, you know, it's a hurricane blows through and all the power lines are dead? Would you steal in and, and break in and steal bread? To which you say, well, I might break in and steal bread, but I'm not going to break in and steal an Xbox. <laughs> I might go in and get flats of water. I'm not going to walk away with, with diamonds. You know what I mean? And the Bible makes it very clear that, that hunger can drive people to do things like that. And the Lord is, is merciful and shows pity for that. But if you're that desperate, why not give the Lord a chance to provide for you? Amen. And say, God, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to re- be reduced to com- breaking one of your commandments. When you're desperate and you're on the edge, that's when you bring it to God. And say, God, the only solution I can see is to get out there and, and wait for somebody to show up at the ATM in the middle of the night and wearing a ski mask and try to take their money. I don't want to do that, God. You've got to help me. You think God's going to keep that from you? And there are many people that want to manipulate you with that too. Almost, almost everybody that comes here asking for money does not deserve it. Do some of them? Yes. And I'm more than happy to hand out money from the church to somebody who deserves it. But I've heard all the stories. I've worked in churches for a long time. I've heard the prescription that needs to be filled. I just need some extra money. I've heard my car just happened to break down in your parking lot and I need the money to go and fill this up and and you can always tell the person that really needs it versus the person who doesn't. Consider if you had to go to a church that you've never been to and ask for money. How, how would you go about that? You would be coming in. You'd be respectful. Yes, sir. No, sir. You might you know, have a hat and actually hold it in your hands. You know? But if somebody says, you know, what I often will say is we, we reserve our benevolence funds for those that are part of this church that attend here. And would you then get angry? I thought you were Christian. I thought you actually cared about people. If people start doing that, you can pretty much tell. Like Solomon and the, and the two women that were fighting over the baby, you can tell which one needs it and which one doesn't. But we as a church, and also as a state, as we will get into later on in this passage, I know most of us are good conservatives and good Republicans, so some of us need to hear this. The Bible tells the rulers and those who have money in the state to make provision for those that don't have anything. They would pay a second tithe in Israel in order to take care of the poor. Now, however that plays out is a matter of policy, and I don't really care at that point. But there is something to be said for making sure that our our church members and our families, especially our families and our countrymen, are not in a place where they are driven to steal. There's always going to be people that abuse what you put out there. God's grace is abused, and he still died for us anyway. But this is another one of those social things. If you cannot trust your commerce, you can't trust that the person you're talking to isn't trying to rip you off. If you can't trust that the price on the sticker is the price that you're going to pay, then your, your society will fall apart. You go over to other countries and do missions and go to these other places and you, know, you learn very quickly that our friends that say that we shouldn't even have traffic laws, we shouldn't even have you know, laws about banking, you know, people will just do the right thing. No, they won't. <laughs> Because all over the world, they're out there trying to rip you off. If they see that you're walking around, especially they can tell you're an American, you've got Nike on, especially if you have white skin and you're in another part of the world, they go, this fellow's got money. How much is this taxi? $10,000. Well, I don't have 10000 but you know, I did bring 500 you know, and 
This is why we've got to make sure that not stealing remains something that we, we do, right? We don't steal. Work predates the fall. We were working before we sinned. It's not a bad thing. So if you're going to sit there and gripe about everything you don't have, ask yourself, could I be working right now? What about all my free time? You can either have free time or you can go out and work and you can get something else for yourself. Amen. We all think that we've got to have like these, and especially people my age. So, I, you know, I'm going to, you know, dunk on myself a little bit here. But, you know, the amount of mental health days that people say they need or the amount of time off or, the, you know, well, but if I'm working nine to five, I really shouldn't have to work more than 40 hours. Well, okay, if that's what you're going to do, then you need to be able to be content with that. And if you want more, then go out and work and earn more. That's what the Bible tells us. If you, if you would rather bank your free time at home, that's okay. But don't get angry at the person that chooses not to and ends up with more than you. But that's the 10th commandment. We'll get to that in a minute. Number nine, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is the commandment against perjury. And we often apply this to lying, but it's important to know, bearing false witness very specifically refers to going to court and being a witness falsely against somebody. And it's all, of course, expanded to include lies of every kind. Those that go to court in order to get something from somebody rather than looking for justice or going to testify against them in order to punish them or for any other reason. I would include in this those Attorneys and people that hire such attorneys that look to, to tweak the lettering of the law in order to get something out of somebody that is not just and not fair. Let me give you an example. Here's a personal example. I rear-ended somebody. And a bunch of y'all just looked up like, what? Yeah, I, I, I did. I rear-ended somebody. And she sued me for $15 million. This is real. She sued me for $15 million. She filed her suit the day before the statute of limitation expired. It didn't go anywhere, and, and, but I had to go through a deposition and everything. And, and I was going maybe 15 miles an hour, you know, wasn't looking at a stoplight, and, you know, rear-ended her. She walked away, fine. A police officer was there. She didn't press charges. It was, you know, just a typical thing. But somebody got hold of her and told her, you know, that his insurance policy will pay out an extra $400,000 if you press charges. And she began to press charges. Now, I don't know this lady's whole story, but... There is no fender bender worth $15 million. Amen. Let's say like a $15 million Fabergé egg in the back seat that got broken or something like that. But that's just one example. It's, it's false witness. You're bending the law to get something you don't deserve. And deserving and just is exactly what the law is all about. Leviticus 19.11 will expand this and say, not lying to one another at all. We tell the truth. God is the God of truth. In fact, Jesus said in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth and the life. God is not afraid of the truth. In fact, when you come before God, he likes to bring out truths that you'd rather not think about. That's why we get so emotional and worked up at our prayer meetings because we've been kind of suppressing it and keeping it down. And then you get before God and the God of truth is standing there right before you and he brings it all out. Jesus said, it is the truth that sets us free. So don't lie. Revelation twenty-two fifteen, talking about heaven. It says, outside, so outside of heaven, are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters. We say, yes, those are the, those are the serious ones. Right? Sexual morality and murderers and idolaters. Yeah, they deserve to be outside of heaven. But then he goes, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The old translation, who practices a lie. 
To falsely represent God's world is to take the side of Satan. John 8.44, Jesus called Satan the father of lies, meaning all lies come from him. He was the first liar. Did God really say, you won't die? You'll become like God. He lied, and that's what got us into this mess, was a lie in the first place. And like I was saying before, if society cannot depend upon its people to tell the truth, you're in serious trouble in business. You know, yeah, we, we signed contracts, but that's only as good as the word of the person that signed it. There are some companies, it seems, speaking of car crashes, that will do everything they can to avoid doing the thing that you signed a contract to do. There are people that will do that. They'll agree to anything in the moment, but later on they have every intention of doing exactly what they want to do. Whether that's in business or in court or at home, you've got to tell the truth to one another. You've got to tell the truth to your kids and to your spouse. You've got to tell the truth to one another in the church as our default position. Don't lie. You, lie, you, know, you can do all kinds of things. You lie, that's the kind of thing people never forget. A lot of times, wives and husbands are able to forgive each other all kinds of terrible things. But lies, people remember that. This is why with my children, very often, you do some rotten thing. You might get in trouble. But if you lie to me about it, oh, you're seriously in trouble. You're going to tell the truth. And I make it very clear. You are not being punished now because of what you did. You're being punished because you lied about it. Justice is perverted when people lie, when they bear false witness. Progress is halted in relationships. And you're not going to get ahead by lying. So don't exaggerate. I didn't lie, just exaggerated. Same thing, fellas. Exaggeration. It's one thing when you're saying the fish was this big instead of this big. That's another thing when you're saying, oh, I got home at, at around midnight last night. Another thing when you're saying, oh, no, yeah, I sent it today. Meaning, I'll probably send it today. Don't cover things up. If you're caught, you're caught. Just own it and say you're sorry. Don't cover it up. This always makes it worse. Most of the time when you try to cover something up, everybody knows it anyway. It's kind of like tragic but kind of funny when you see some politician on TV caught in an obvious lie and they're trying to cover it up like on the fly. Yeah, you don't have your PR guy with you right now. He's much better at lying than you are. Don't lie. Tell the truth. And I might add, live your life in such a way that you don't have to lie. Live your life in such a way that you are perfectly fine with everybody knowing what you've been doing. And I'm not talking about being out there and blaring all your business to the whole world. There's a place to be judicious. Proverbs says, only a fool gives full vent to his spirit. It's the whole idea of venting. That's not a biblical one. But a wise man holds it back. But when you do speak... Remember, this might go back to that be slow to speak kind of thing. When you do speak, let it be the truth every time without fail. Your yes be yes and your no be no. You can even be so sarcastic and trying to be funny all the time that people can't even take you seriously and they don't know if you're telling the truth or not. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor because a lie does not just affect you, it affects everyone around you. In the 10th commandment, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant 
or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Tenth and finally is the only truly what you might call internal commandment. Everything else has an external component to it, but this command again, covetousness, is important because it's internal. The word for covet is hamad in Hebrew. It just means to desire. Very simple word. But it's clear in context that this is illicit desire, having something that is not yours. It can even mean to take pleasure in something. Do not take pleasure in craving and lusting after, different sense of lust here, but to desire strongly something that is your neighbor, something that's not yours. This can be a house. This can be a wife or a husband. This can be an animal. This can be status. It can be money. It can be anything. It can be different for every person. What does your neighbor have that you want? And I'm not talking about, oh, that's a great car. I'd love to have one. There's a difference between seeing your, your neighbor have something great, being happy for them and also wanting that, then say, this is covetousness. Covetous says, I, I don't want one of those cars. I want his. I don't want him to have that. I want to have it instead. That's covetousness. You know, saying, where'd you get those shoes? I might go pick some up too. That's not covetousness. But making eyes at somebody's husband because it seems like he treats his wife so much better than yours does you, that's covetousness. At the root of it is a lack of contentment. And it's so evil because it is despising God's order of things. What God has given me is not enough. I want what they have. The Israelites, give us a king like the other nations. Did not go well for them, did it? God gave them a king. It led to a lot of trouble. The Lord was their king. But instead, they, they got what everybody else had. To say, God, what you've blessed him or her with is something I ought to have. It's a, it's a lack of contentment. Judas was covetous. Judas didn't just want to serve the Lord. He wanted to get his cut. I, I'm, I can imagine. It doesn't say this in the scripture. I can imagine there were plenty of people like Zacchaeus, maybe like Nicodemus, but although he was more fearful than, than Zacchaeus was, who were more than willing to sell all that they have and give to the Lord and say, Lord, go do your ministry. And Judas was in charge of all that. And after a while, it says he began to take money out for himself. And it seems like they all kind of knew about it and just kind of overlooked it. Because <laughs> they didn't want to accuse their brother, maybe. And then that, that night comes in Bethany where Mary breaks the alabaster flask and anoints Jesus with it. And Judas... Stands up and says, why wasn't, the, don't you know what could have been done with that money? We could have sold it and given to the poor. He's using religion as a cloak for his covetousness. I could have gotten 10% of that. Nobody would have ever noticed it was so. I could have sold it for 5,000 and said I sold it for four. Covetousness. He's, his covetousness drove him, drove him to dis, betray his Lord and our Lord. Be content with what you have. Be content with what you're capable of. Be content and live with the decisions you've made. Regret can lead to covetousness. I should have done this. When he was working hard, I was out goofing off, and now he's way ahead, and look at me over here. Why did I stick with this person? I could have maybe met somebody better along the line. Why did I invest now? I should have invested later. Listen, you've got to live with the decisions you made. Not be constantly looking back. 
to say, this is the where, where I am. I trust that the Lord was in it, and if he wasn't, I trust his grace will cover it. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For the Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Because I'm with you. What do you need stuff for? Keep your life free from love of money. And as I've said a million times, you can be broke and be more greedy than a billionaire. In fact, the people I know that are most obsessed with money are the ones that don't have any. The ones that are going to steal, the ones that are going to lie in order to get money are most of the time the ones that don't have any money. Because the Lord's not going to bless that. So don't sit back and say, well, yeah, those Wall Street guys. Listen, I've never met a Wall Street guy, but I've met plenty of broke folks that are obsessed with money. I've been one before. It is truly wicked to say, not what I have, but what he has. That's what I need. That's what I deserve. It'll drive you to all these other sins. And it's so important that God included a motivational internal commandment here. Because all of the ten are about your heart fundamentally. That's what Jesus taught us in Matthew 5, right? That it's about, not just about adultery, it's about lust. Not just about murder, but it's about hate and anger and self-control. And covetousness reminds us of that. It's the heart of the sin behind it. And this attitude, this covetousness, I, I, you know, I wrote down here is pervasive in the world today, but it's been pervasive for so long. There are some people, politicians and activists and other folks who, who gain support and gain a following by stirring up covetousness among people, stirring up class covetousness under the guise of fairness. And it's so insidious because there is a place for that done properly. But the Bible tells us, with food and clothing, we are to be content. So when we start arguing over, is somebody going to have $25,000 a year or $25 million? We're so far above what Jesus told us to be content with. We've got to be ashamed of ourselves for griping about that. And there are folks that want to, they don't want to say, your life is good, or if you work hard, you can make your life better. You want to come and say, look what they have. You ought to have what they have. Don't you wish you had that? Don't you wish you were like those fat cats? It's not fair that they have it and you don't. And if you elect me, we'll take it away from them and give it to you. And they never do, do they? Nobody's ever done that, but we keep falling for it. God never endorses that. God commands those who are rich to be content with what they have and to share with those who don't. And he commands those who are poor to rejoice that they don't have all the attendant problems that come with wealth and to be content with Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. James says, you who are poor, rejoice in your exaltation. And you who are rich, rejoice in your humiliation. Because when you stand before God, everything's going to get real level real quick. And you can both rejoice that that's what makes the difference. Don't look to those with more than you and get all prissy and fussy and jealous. Don't say, well, those folks over there in Trustful, they're just all snooty and full of themselves. And we over here in Clay or wherever, uh, we, we don't have as much. They think there's something. Don't do that. Mind your own business. Amen. Mind your own business. Amen. Who cares what they have? Who cares if he has more than you? What do we already see? Don't steal don't try to vote your way into stealing from somebody either. Get up and work for it. And if you work and it doesn't happen, okay. It's all going to burn anyway. 
There was a foolish man that Jesus described was the guy that made a whole lot of money and built a whole lot more stuff to hold more stuff, and then he died. Jesus said, that's foolishness right there. Keep a loose hold. Money is just a thing. It's just stuff. He said, lay up treasure in heaven. God cares about your motivations, not just your actions. Have a thankful, content heart. And when people start talking about those people and, you know, this percent or that percent of people, I'm all for good laws. I'm all for making sure that everything is done judiciously and fairly. But I have no patience for those, especially in the name of Jesus, who talk about justice and fairness. And really what they're talking about is covetousness and greed. I'm going to win this election. I'm going to win this contest. I'm going to win your business by making you feel like what God has given you is not enough. And for preachers like me that come out and tell us we ought to be content, you're just establishing the status quo. No, we have our eyes somewhere else. We recognize that our treasure is not here. Our treasure is in heaven. Amen. So have a thankful, content heart and don't be covetous. So we had commands against polytheism and against idolatry, against blasphemy, to keep the Sabbath against disobedience to parents, against murder, adultery, theft, perjury, and covetousness. And in verse 18, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid. Yeah. <laughs> and trembled, and they stood far off. This is backing up. You ever been to a big, big concert and the headliner comes out and everybody gets pushed forward? The opposite is happening. Everybody at the front wants to back up. No, no, I'm not standing next to that mountain anymore. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. There's a great example in that verse of the, the two senses of the fear of the Lord. In one sense, you ought to fear the Lord and have that respect and that holy trembling before him. But in another sense, God himself has brought you in and brought you near and you ought to love the Lord. So the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. I love that image, the thick darkness where God was. Now remember the Ten Commandments, they're coming forth in thunder. You've heard a loud thunderclap right outside your window before. You've been out driving when the, the tornado blows in and it goes from light to dark in an instant. You've heard the wind, you've seen the rain, and there's God's thundering voice speaking these words. Really uh, makes more of an impact when it says, you shall have no other gods before me. <laughs> I'm sure the last thing on anybody's mind was, you know what this God needs is a statue. That way we can really grasp who he is. No. And they were rightly very afraid. That was the whole point. God was trying to scare them. They insisted, Moses, you speak to God and then you speak to us. But we, don't, we can't take this. We can't listen to God all the time, which is exactly what God was wanting them to do. Remember, before all this happened, he said that they may fear me and that they may fear you and know that you are speaking for me. They're, they're going to forget this lesson along the way, but Moses tells them not to be afraid, but to trust the words that had come from the Lord. And they did. And these, of course, are not the only laws that God has laid down, but they're a good start. And we ought to do them, especially the ones we've talked about today are so practical and there's so many ways to apply them. And this could have been 10 messages. 
Where have you fallen short on the Ten Commandments? Have you allowed other things to crowd in and God is your God, but really work is your God? When work calls, you're there. If something's good, if it's going to be between work and God, God's going to lose every time because God will understand. He'll forgive me. My boss won't understand. Is that, is that your God? About idolatry, have you, have you got graven images, maybe one with an LED screen that you bow down to all the time? What about blasphemy? Are you using the name of the Lord in a way other than to praise Him? Are you dragging the name Christian through the mud by the way you're living? Are your words not trustworthy, so you've got to surround them in, I swear, I swear to God? That's exactly what he's talking about. Are you keeping the Sabbath? Now you're here at church. I'm not going to beat you up. But are you taking time out of your week to not only rest as you ought to, but to worship and to seek the Lord and to be with your family? Are you keeping those commandments, those vertical commandments? Disobedience to your parents? Now, most of us are grown in here. Are you honoring your parents? Maybe you've moved past the point of actually obeying their words, like take out the trash. But are you, are you making provision for them in their old age? Are you respecting their opinion even though you think the old man doesn't know what he's talking about anymore? Are you doing what's right and what's best for them? Are you not feeding into their, their foolishness? Murder. I hope none of you have killed anybody in here. But are you harboring hatred in your heart? Do you have that, that time of the day where you read that article or you watch that TV show and you get nice and angry and hateful of this group or that group of people? Are you committing adultery? Oh, I hope there's no adultery going on in this church. I really hope there's not. If there is, you must stop at once. You need to come and confess and repent before God. But even so, any of those things that we discussed, ranging from lust and pornography to fornication, whatever it is, and I hope none of you would be so embarrassed that you couldn't come forward and ask for prayer and for accountability from this church. We're not going to judge you. We know what, what it's like. We want to walk through it with you, but you must repent. Are you stealing? I don't know what you're stealing, but are you stealing? Are you refusing to work hard and, and insisting that you ought to have what somebody else has? Are you a liar? Are you a liar? Do you tell the truth or do people have to double check what you say? about covetousness. Are you content with the life God's given to you? Or is there a corner of your brain that you let yourself go where you just simmer about all the things you don't have? Do you not want to talk to your brother-in-law because you know he's going to tell you something that's going to make you feel small? Y'all, I worked, I worked for 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I walked around in a nasty blue uniform and I was treated very poorly by a lot of people. I'm walking around with my master's degree in the landfill seven times a day. I know how it feels to feel hard done by and to feel like you ought to have better. That's not how God sees it. That's not how we're supposed to see it either. Take strong measures to correct what is wrong and add to what is lacking. And if we will keep these things the way the word intends us to, this places us outside the mainstream of even unfortunately what most Christians are willing to do. But it's what we ought to do. The word says, be holy as the Lord is holy. Fear the Lord. Remember who He is in His might and His power, not just at Mount Sinai, but in raising Christ from the dead, the moment when He saved your soul. And let that drive you to obedience. You've got the words 
of his representatives, not just Moses, but the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of God himself. Heed that word. Don't just read your Bible. Don't just memorize it. Don't just study it and wave it around like a, like a magic charm. Do it. Be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. Teach them diligently to your children. And may we never offer excuses, even to ourselves, for not doing what God has commanded us to do. If he has given us commandments, that makes him our commander, doesn't it? And when your commander tells you to do something, the only thing you have to say is, yes, sir.